Welcome to the Walpole High Film Festival's podcast, One Point Perspective, a podcast that explores the world of digital filmmaking and talks to young aspiring filmmakers in high school, college, and beyond. Now here are the hosts of the show, Mike Allen and James Conley. Today we sit down with Tim Marcados. We talked to Tim about his time in the Walpole High School Film Festival, his love for foreign films, and how he became a nationally published film critic. This is One Point Perspective. Okay, so we are honored to welcome a graduate of 2011 Walpole High and director of The Snacker, Tim Marcados to our studio for One Point Perspective. Welcome, Tim. Hello, I'm back after a long absence. <laughs> you know, wait, uh, what, how many years now? Eight years, Eight right? Eight years. Mm-hmm. years. Holy smokes. So, Tim, thanks for coming. And Thank we, you for having me in. Yeah, we usually start uh, just kind of rehashing some of your memories uh, uh, about when you were in high school and, and your relationship with the film festival. Okay, so, yeah, I guess so. I feel like I was sort of, like, very kind of off-rack film festival. Um, I never took the full film class. I did a lot of the summer editing classes, and I think the first thing I ever made at Waffle High was um, No Hallway for Freshmen, the iconic spoof video trailer of the No Country for Old Men trailer, where we got Mr. Cashman to wear this, like, very terrible comb-over wig. Um, And we even did, like, the exploding... um, what do we have? Like the football field um, signage exploding in the background of one shot. So that was, I think, my first exposure to WHS Film Festival. You took this, the summer course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. W- was it one year or two years? I did it two years. I can't remember what the other year was, but like, it couldn't compare to... The- uh, was, now, was that with Molly Brennan? That was with Molly Brennan. Okay. And now, for those people listening out there, you will be able to find... No Hallway for Freshmen on the website. It's one of the Easter eggs. I'm guessing it is probably somewhere in uh, hidden in year eight or maybe year seven. You'd have to check. We hide, we hide things with literal Easter eggs, <laughs> icons. You have to hunt for them. So that you did, I remember you doing it one year, um, but you did it two years. And what was your other project? I don't remember. I yet. can't remember. It may have just been like prep for something I was doing during the school year. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you never were in the actual film class? So I was in the creative writing class, and I did a short screenplay for that class called It's All French to Me, which was one of those, like, fridge logic ideas that just, like, it comes to you from above, and you're just like, thank you, and you just receive the message from the angel, and then you just, like, write your screenplay, and it's there, it's done, and you didn't have to do anything with it. So this was such a hit with Mr. Allen that you wanted me to be in the film class the next semester, to make this into a film for that year's film festival, I had to take health to graduate. So, like, he marched down to my guidance counselor's office and was like, Tim doesn't need to take health. Just, like, switch him into the film class. So he did, which meant, of course, in that my senior year, I did have to take health, and I couldn't be in the film class. So, karma, whatever. (laughs) Is that right? (laughs) That is right. That sounds right. (laughs) Back then, in the dark ages, right? So we, uh, yeah... Film didn't like count for anything. Remember? Yeah, it didn't count, and so it took a lot of a lot of years for uh, us to convince the powers that be. And now, it, now it does count for Unified Arts. 
which was freed up a lot. Yeah, a lot of students in your situation had to do like some finagling. I remember some kids had to take classes online and stuff. Yeah, I remember I, I played like, uh, I was switching math classes. Uh, like, I, like I switched like two or three times in one year just to make sure. I was in creative writing for the first semester and then I switched math classes just to get into film the next semester. Yeah, and so movie. your senior year, you, uh, so you were not in the film class, you were coming in after school to That's do That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. And the snacker was your senior year uh, project. Talk about the, the generation of that, of that script. So the snacker started as a script that Grace Lynch and I wrote during the creative writing class as our sort of big project. It's all French to me being my final project for that class. Um, it went through several revisions at the hand of Jimmy Gillen. And then my senior year, Mike Seitman and I were co-directors on this movie. Although Mike did the majority of filming since he was actually in the film class. I came in after school to help out with some of the shoots, setting up, taking down, and then I did most of the editing for the film, um, including reducing its runtime by five minutes at your request at, after we had gotten it up to a nice, a nice breezy, 20, like not breezy, a, a nice, a nice like laid back 27 minutes and you watch it and you're just like, it needs to lose five minutes. And I'm like, but there's nothing that can be lost because it is perfectly <laughs> edited as it is, as every first time filmmaker learns. So. Snacker was my senior year project. Um, that's when I kind of really got into Final Cut Pro. And of course, that's useless now because everyone uses Premiere, but thankfully I can also use Premiere now too. But that's kind of what transitioned into college for me. I knew I wanted to do some kind of film thing. And so uh, I don't know if this is where you're going. So sorry for yeah, running yeah, away no, with this. So I uh, had all this knowledge of how to edit. I showed up at school. I went to Georgetown to study foreign languages, and I found the student-run TV and movie production studio. They needed someone to edit a news broadcast. I volunteered myself because I wanted to like keep editing. Um, and so I did that. It was a very, very haphazardly run program. Um, people kind of didn't know what they were doing. Um, there were a lot of rookie mistakes, but it was still just like a chance for me to continue to use my editing. In the course of college, I started to gravitate away from editing more towards photography and then toward other things, and especially toward design. And right now, I'm a graphic designer full-time. Um, but I'm still very involved in film. How was that? Ooh, that sounds like a question that you should ask me. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah, it's funny because you have all the components of like a, a, a filmmaker. You were really into editing, and then you were really into cameras and, and photography. And you really love film. It's a trifecta. It's a trifecta. Yeah. But instead of going, it's interesting to me because instead of going, all right, I'm going to go into the industry and try to make some films, you kind of split yourself into say, all right, I'm going to use a lot of my skills for uh, graphic design. And I'm going to use the, my other passion for film to, do, to, to be a national reviewer of film. So can you talk about that? So that did happen. That is a thing on my resume. So... The fun story here that I like to tell is that I never liked movies growing up. Like, the, I think the closest movie theater that we would go to, my family and I, besides the Sharon Theater, which is kind of like small and junky, is it there anymore? Does that theater exist? The Sharon Theater? Sharon, I think it does. It, like in the strip mall with the shows? Yeah. yeah. I think so. It does? Okay, well. I think it, so. Wardsbury Farm. In right any down. case, like the yeah. actual like largest theater at that time was in, I think, Bellingham. So it was like 40-minute drive out there. And then, like, however long for the movie. And, like, half the time... This was, this was in the days before, like, 
pre-sale tickets online. Like you couldn't buy tickets online because that was not a thing. So like you would go out to Bellingham to see like Spy Kids 2 or whatever and you'd get there and it was sold out. So then you drove all the way there and you had to like find something to do for another 50 minutes until the next show started. So like the idea of going to movies was never really like, it really had to be a special movie for me to actually want to go see it. And so like consequently, I never really had any kind of affection for movies growing up. Um, when I got to, um, I think it was probably around like junior year film, uh, junior year film slash creative writing class, Mr. Allen, you would just kind of like be like, I think what you're going for here is sort of like what they did in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, which you should watch just to know what I'm talking about, but you actually shouldn't watch it because it's not a good movie. So like, don't bother. But like, you would just keep like throwing all these names of movies at me and like I hadn't watched them and you'd be like, come on, Marcados. And like, I couldn't actually respond in my work to any of these suggestions because I hadn't seen any of the things you're referring to. So I get to college. Oh God. I got to college. And by this point, like, you know, I hadn't watched a lot of movies, but I read a lot of film criticism because at the time, the two um, chief film critics of the Boston Globe were Ty Burr, who's still there, and Wesley Morris, who's now at the New York Times. Um, and they were just such good writers that like, I never needed to go see any of the movies they wrote about. I would just always want to know what they thought of them. And like, my favorite is like Ty Burr, like reviewed Barnyard, this like disposable 3D movie with like talking animals. And he like described how he would rather drive rusty railroad spikes through his eyes than through one more poorly animated movie about talking animals. And I just thought like, this is so great. Like you don't even need to watch movies. You can just like say so many good, fun things about them. Like there's so much potential here for language to be used in really like interesting ways that aren't like politicizing and they aren't like dry history and they're also not fiction it's like it's almost a kind of reporting on something but it's a reporting and it's a reportage that lets you use language a lot more freely and exuberantly and Wesley Morris of course has such a jazzy style like he went to Grantland for a few years do people listening to this podcast even know what Grantland is well they they would have before it shuttered um the, I mean we used to read Grantland in class every now and again you Do you know, read Mark Harris's essay, The Birdcage? Because that's a classic. Yeah, Mark Harris, who who's, has a couple really good books out there, I'll talk about those books and say you should read this or that, but um, very few actually read. I mean, now it's The Ringer. So mm-hmm. um, Cam Collins? Yeah. Actually, he's at Vanity Fair now. Wow. Time moves fast. Time moves too fast. Yeah. So, like, the kids today, um, do they read film reviews? That's a good question. So, we're going to throw that out to our users right there, our, our, our listeners. We're going to throw it out to our listeners, do they read film reviews? I would probably say no. They probably go on Rotten Tomatoes and, yeah. and like, and okay. You yeah. got to nip that habit in the bud. Well, what's popular now, Tim, is actually these video essays, um, mm. which are very, very good. And I use them in my, uh, in my teachings a lot, like cre- with creative writing and with film, stuff like lessons from the screenplay. And, uh, every frame of painting? Well, every frame of painting is gone now, too. I know too. it's gone now, but Yeah, we used to watch, we watched pretty much every one of those, every frame of, of painting. Mm-hmm. So, sa- I guess, sadly, no, they, they probably don't read them as much as they should. Well, reading is good, and one should read a lot, all the time, always. So, <laughs> so Wesley Morris and Tyber were big inspirations for me, even before I started to get into movies. And I think it was my senior year of high school that I really started to actually like, watch more things. Um, I just remember being totally bowled over by the social network, because I was like, 
not aware that you could make a movie that is this good in such a way that's not just like, I don't know, like a, a typical Hollywood movie. I so remember. And I, I remember yeah. your. I remember how excited I was about this movie that you hadn't seen yet, and I yeah, like and came he, in. And I remember like, you came in. I'm I don't know. You must have buzz. seen the. He must have seen the premiere or something. He came in, and uh, I just I remember distinctly. He's like, I won't give anything away, but I, I, you need to watch this segment. And he, and he played the, uh, the, the rowing, you know, segment uh, where they lose the, the uh, Henry Regatta scene there, and um, well. Just so you know, we do watch oh, yeah. that movie every, <laughs> every year. <laughs> year. It's the only movie we watch yeah. in film is The Social Network and the making of The Social and Network. And the making of. So, like, <sighs> and I almost didn't do it this year because <gasps> the, yeah. the, the, the period, periods are shorter and we're kind of pressed for time this year. And, and uh, Mr. Connolly and I talked about maybe cutting that out. And the kids were... They were in an uproar. They were like, "No, no, we can't." And I was like, you, I, I go, "Is this is this worth it?" Because I think it is. And they're like, "Oh yeah, absolutely, it's totally worth it." Yeah, and a uh, lot of the people who made it in as a sophomore, this is their third time watching three. Yeah, so. it, but it's, I've seen it eight times. Yeah, so there's no limit to that. Well, it's not so much the it. movie that I it, want to watch. It's the making of, of yeah. which right. is mm-hmm. like three hours long. And Fincher just, I mean, every step is there, and it's great to talk about. And it's mm-hmm. such a, a great movie. And um, it's almost like masterclass before it is masterclass, yeah. right? Exactly mm-hmm. right. So the fun thing is, I didn't know who David Fincher was when I saw this movie. So I had not seen Fight Club. I, I still have not seen Seven. I hadn't seen anything he had done. And so I come in and I'm just like, this new movie is so amazing. And you, of course, already knew who Fincher was. And you knew the pedigree here in the background. So when I get off to college, this is when I sort of decided, okay, I have some free time because I'm not in classes from 9 to 5. Well, that's a day job. I'm not in classes from 9 to 2. So I started to watch movies in my spare time and it by complete like not planned accidental whatever I had bought one more notebook than I ended up needing for my classes that semester so I like I watched Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind that was the first movie I checked out from our school library and I had this notebook that like didn't have any use and I'm like what if I just like use this to keep track of the movies I watched so I did that and I kept that up for seven years and reviewed like 600 movies in the span of that seven-year period. I watched a lot of movies in college, and then when I got out of college, I continued to watch a lot of movies. Um, When I was in college, I tended to do more things that I could get on DVD or things I could stream. After college, I had a lot more disposable income to just go to movies. Um, But this doesn't actually answer the question of, like, me, published nationally film critic. So when I got out of college, the first full, like, paid gig I had was as a media intern, and like, I don't recommend you do this. Like, avoid, I mean, if you want to, sure. Like, we can talk about the media another time. But I had a friend who worked at a magazine in DC, and I had asked her the summer after I graduated, hey, our, I know you have an internship program, and I know you pay, like, can you tell me more about that? And so she sends me a 3,000 word email that's like, I'm so glad you asked, and just like stepped me through, like, these are the things we're specifically looking for this semester. Play up your graphic design and like video editing skills. So I did when I applied. I got this job. Um, it was at a ma- magazine called The American Conservative. Um, Andrew Basevich, who lives in Walpole, last I checked, um, is a frequent contributor there. Um, it's a very weird magazine because it's not what you would normally think of as conservative, but at the same time, there's a real kind of like division internally between the directions that people want to take the magazine. I didn't really care about any of this. I just wanted to get paid and like live in DC where I had gone to school and like made my friends and network and everything. Now, I did, however, have 
four years of writing pretty consistently about movies in my belt. So I proposed to one of the editors one day, like, hey, I know you sometimes run movie reviews. Can I go review this movie for you? And the movie in question was um, Denny Villeneuve's Sicario. Yeah. So I went and I saw it. And, like, it's a very ferociously made movie. And, like, a lot, you can learn a lot about filmmaking from this movie. But there were also just kind of, like, other, like, storytelling problems I had with it. And so I really kind of sunk my teeth into it and, like, wrote this sort of, like, ravishing, like, 800-word review of it. And, like, they were just, like, you know, they always say, like, kill your darlings. And, like, there were just, like, so many throwaway lines in this review that I was just so proud of. And when I showed it, when I showed it to my one friend, who's also a big writer, she was like, they're going to cut, like, half of this. And they didn't end up cutting any of it, so they just, like, ran it as it is. And that was kind of, like, my prerogative as, like, the intern who just happened to offer this skill of reviewing movies to the magazine. And it's funny, because that's... Either you sent that to me, which you might have, uh, but that I, I read that review, Sicario, which is one of my favorite, if not my favorite from that year, either that or Des S. Machina. S. Machina, I think, is the same mm-hmm. year. Those two are like my favorite. And there was like a paragraph where he wrote on the, uh, the color scheme of Sicario. But I remember reading that and sending it to Mr. Russo out there being like, this is one of my former directors being all proud of the, uh, that review. It was, it was quite a review. It was awesome. Thank you. So that's kind of how that got started. Um, from time to time, I would just like pitch a movie review and I wouldn't get paid for it because I was already on payroll. So it's kind of like an additional thing. And it was, it was fun to just like get some stuff out there to start to kind of contribute to the online conversation, such as it were. Um, I did end up then doing a couple more reviews for another website that did pay me um, but it was always just kind of like very weird for me at the time because I, I was very aware of the ways I kind of had to like do some kind of like gymnastics to avoid talking about things that the publications wouldn't necessarily want to talk about. And it's like, for me, I loved talking about the craftsmanship. And of course, those were always the parts that editors wanted to see go first because they're just like, well, this is irrelevant. But for me, it's just like, no, it's absolutely relevant how a movie is made. And like, you need to give me at least one paragraph where I can talk about the cinematography. Um, so I think... I was doing that for about two years. And then, like, by virtue of working in the media in a big East Coast city, I met a lot of other people with media jobs or who had been in and out of the media. And I started to make connections with other editors. So I did some writing here and there. So then, about two years ago, I was talking to this guy who a couple of friends in DC were like, if you're looking for career advice, talk to this guy. He's very good at, like, helping young people figure out what to do with their lives. And so I did, and he was really great. It was a really good conversation, and he asked a lot of leading questions to kind of get me to think about, like, everything I had done with my life and what I might do next. So a few months later, I was at the end of my contract at the magazine I was working for, and I get an email from him that's like, can you get coffee on Monday? And he sent this on, like, a Friday evening, and I'm like, I think I should be able to. And he goes, like, we're getting coffee on Monday. Come meet me at this time. So he did, and then he sits down with me, and he's like, okay, so I was hired as the books and arts editor for the Weekly Standard. They didn't know what to do with the section, so they're just like, pitch us. And I gave them this proposal and said, this is what I want to do with this section of the magazine. And they're like, okay, go for it. So you were on the list of like five young writers that I wanted to try cultivating here, and so you're going to write for me. And I'm like, okay, great. So I spent the next couple of months searching for a full-time job while also doing some writing for him. And my first piece for him was on David Lowry's A Ghost Story. So for about a year and a half, I was writing for the Weekly Standard about movies. I had one piece that I will never forget. I had seen Frederick Wiseman's documentary on the New York Public Library, 
And I sent in like 2,600 words to my editor and he calls me the next morning and goes, this was good, it needs to be longer though. And I'm like, this never happens. Like no editor tells a young writer, especially like, you need to make this longer. So this is how I knew this was a very good guy to work with. And then like last year, I wanted to go to New York Film Festival because I had some time off from work and I had enough of my savings to make a trip to New York. I had friends who lived there too that I wanted to see. And so on a whim, I just emailed my editor and said, I'm planning on going to New York Film Festival. Can I write about it for you? And he's like, absolutely. I'll reimburse you for the tickets too. So I saw seven movies at New York Film Festival and got reimbursed for it in addition to the payment for the article I ended up writing. So that was my charmed life. And now the Weekly Standard is closed and my editor is currently like TBD. Like no one knows what he's doing next, but he was a very good editor. And so whatever he ends up doing next, a lot of people are going to follow because he produced a lot of good pieces in his tenure. Just for the record, I like Ghost Story. Um, <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was... <laughs> put it on the record. Put it on. It's a good little movie. I don't know. People should, should check it out. See, like, I think like, that's a perfect movie for you because you can, you can kind of dive in and mm-hmm. you know, look, look at all, all the, the philosophical, like, uh, deeper themes that he's going for, which I think he does well with. It's also a good movie for the film festival to talk about because it was made on such a small budget so you can talk about like you you can even do this for under a million dollars i think it was under a million it's under a million but you know you got to understand that casey affleck and and mm-hmm. uh and mara rooney like did it for nothing mm-hmm. so like you know they had two huge stars that uh in that's the film that casey did after he won the oscar mm-hmm. so it was pretty big after uh, he won the oscar he just wanted to wear a sheet over yeah, like, it, didn't want to be it seen. literally <laughs> could have been anybody under that sheet like he, but it went with Casey. Yeah. But he evidently it was him. Yeah, it's a good little movie. Okay, so when did you decide to do the newsletter, and like how many uh, subscribers do you have, or do you know that? So anything? that was just kind of on a lark, and I can't remember exactly where the idea came from. But it was like, it was toward the end of a calendar year, and I just like put out a question to a bunch of my friends on the internet, like, if I wrote a newsletter about movies, would you subscribe? And a bunch of people said yes, we would. So I'm like, okay. So I tried it out. Um, I started like doing like two uh, two issues a month. So the first and third Monday of each month was my was my plan, and there was really kind of like no rhyme or reason in the beginning. It was just sort of like whatever was on my mind at the time, and then I also wanted to link to articles I had read about movies that were interesting, and then also include like a coming soon section. And then I kind of used I kind of used it as my own chance to just sort of like pontificate out loud about things I wanted to pontificate about. Um, and then, like, my favorite, like, some people get really into predicting the Oscars, which, like, good for you. I was there, too. But now it's really fun for me to predict, like, what's going to show up at the Cannes official competition, which is, like, it's a, a very precise art because you have to pay attention to the release, the planned release dates of movies, but also, like, who the international distributors are. And you can pretty much figure it out, but there are always some wild cards. And so, like, this is kind of, like, my new um, Oscars predicting. Um, and I do it every year in my newsletter, my subscribers have to just like humor me. Um, I have about 150 subscribers. I know a lot of them personally. Some of them I don't know who they are. It's like, they're just like all these mysterious email names. And I'm like, who is that person? Um, but yeah, it's actually mu- much more than I thought it would be. And yeah. you, don't, you don't get to go to the festivals or do you? So I haven't tried this yet. So New York Film Festival was not all that long ago. I've been to Maryland Film Festival, which is close enough to me that it's just a quick train ride up on a Saturday. Um, I went to that like two years ago. I haven't been to any other festivals to try covering though, in large part because I really enjoy my day job as a graphic designer. And so that's kind of where I want to put my, the, I, the career basket 
needs eggs, and I'm using graphic design eggs to fill it. I mean, just reading your newsletter, and I read it, I'm one of the 150. <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you are definitely, you lean towards foreign films and, and, and mm-hmm. such. And I'm always like writing back, being like, you, like in, when he's like, I've, I've never seen Seven. I'm like, what? <laughs> this is embarrassing. It's like, watch Seven. Or you said some PTA movie you hadn't seen. And I was like, oh. probably Magnolia. You need to understand when a movie is over two hours long, it is very difficult for me to convince myself to watch it in my own home. So like, I, it probably wasn't Magnolia because I'm not a fan of that movie. Ooh, and, interesting. And, and it's like mm. way overblown. Oh, no, and Boogie Nights. Overrated. You're a big fan of Boogie Nights, yeah. right? Oh, you hadn't seen Boogie Nights. I haven't Nights. seen Boogie Nights. Shame. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> we don't have to put that one in. No, we can cut but, that. Uh, oh, easily one of the best movies in the 90s. Can check it out. Yeah. That's on Netflix. You should watch it. Seven's on Netflix, too. Seven is phenomenal. All these too. movies are very easy to acquire now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Well, um, you're, I mean, but my point to go back to you, you have this like unbelievable just wealth of knowledge on film. I mean, I read your stuff. And I'm like, oh, I got to check out that foreign film because like, you know, unless somebody, unless it's in contention for the Oscars or somebody has talked about it, you know, I'll miss it. So I'm like always looking at what you say for, for that stuff. Where, where did you get that? Like, you know, where did you start leaning towards foreign film? Hmm. So I think this kind of traces back to my godmother, who is very cosmopolitan and very into fine arts. Um, would, when I was younger, recommend foreign films to my parents and me. And we wouldn't watch most of them because we always knew kind of like she has a little bit of a highbrow taste. But there was one year that we went and saw Slumdog Millionaire at the Dedham Community Theater. And we all just really enjoyed it. And I would not rank it among my favorite foreign films now. It almost kind of doesn't not a, count because it's, it's, not a foreign film. it's, Danny, right, Boyle, it's right? Danny Boyle. But it was in a foreign language. And so the kind of seed was there like, oh, movies that aren't in English can be engaging too, even if you don't have any connection to the language or the culture. So since I was also a French minor in school and I was a Greek and Latin major, I was just kind of like swimming in foreign things already. So I would watch foreign movies in my French classes, including La Confessionale, a movie which no one else that I know of has ever even heard of, which is by the director of Cirque du Soleil. And it's just like this wildly ambitious movie set in two time periods, one of which is like the 50s when Alfred Hitchcock was in Quebec filming I Confess. And it's just like a movie that does everything. But my one professor for one French class was kind of like a Quebec expert. And so she made us watch this. And like, this is like, normally in French classes, you would watch like, I don't know, Breathless, Au Foire les Enfants. Um, we did watch Zazie dans le Metro in a French class where we read Zazie dans le Metro in, in, in um, book form. Uh, but like it's not like the first kind of thing you think of. And so that's, I guess, where the kind of interest started. And so there was one year in college specifically where I was like, okay, this is going to be the year where every weekend I'm going to make a point to watch a new foreign film. And I tried to kind of like hit up all the major names that you hear in cinephile circles. So I watched Max Ophels and Fassbinder and Mizoguchi and Ozu. Um, then later I would get really into seeing old restoration, restorations of old foreign films in theaters. So there was one summer I was home in Walpole and the um, Apu trilogy by Satyajit Ray was playing at the Kendall, Square, the Kendall Square Cinema in Cambridge. And I told my parents, we have to go see Pother Ponchali, just don't ask questions. And so we went. I got really into foreign films this way. And like, especially just like the breadth of different storytelling styles. But like Romare is like my favorite filmmaker bar none. He just like is so intelligent 
And his movie making isn't flashy, but it's really kind of demonstrated to me how there's more than one way to make a good, there's more than one way to make a good movie. And like his movies are just like brimming with life. I went to New York specifically to see The Green Ray on film at the Metrograph Theater. Oh yeah. And I ashamedly did not see The Green Ray at the end of the movie because it was either like the print was dull or I blinked, but like what happens in this scene, if you watch it on YouTube, is like, right, it's like, it's so well edited where it's like the kind of tension between like cutting back and forth between the sun setting and her just like being like so like anxious. And she's a very anxious person. Like the guy she's with is just like, okay, whatever. Like there's a moment where there is a green ray and I missed it in theaters. And I felt like such an idiot because I'm like, wait, was there a green ray or wasn't there? There was a green ray. All right. <laughs> so... I know you didn't get into, uh, you know, filmmaking. However, what advice would you give some some of our directors who listen to this podcast and want to hear what people have to say about, you know, what? I mean, there's there's the broad sense of should I even go to film school? What do I study in film school? Or, or I like film, but I don't want to go to film school. Like the anxiety over, you know, how much it costs versus would, making money in it. I don't know if, if you have any advice for those types of kids. So I don't know if I have advice that's good, but I'll kind of pull from what I know to sort of offer some thoughts that might be helpful. So one, th- so one thing I'll just jump on. So like, if you listen to filmmakers talk about their influences, they do have influences beside film. So I know like recently... The Safdie brothers were talking around the release of Good Time about some of their influences, and they brought up Nikolai Gogol's Dead Souls as a book that had really influenced that particular story they were trying to tell. So it's good to have influences outside of film, and from that I can extrapolate and say, like, you don't need to start as a filmmaker to become a filmmaker. So, like, Romer, to go back to him, was the chief film critic of Cahiers du Cinéma in France, for several years, and like he and all of the French New Wave directors, Godard, Truffaut, Varda, Rivet, they started as film critics before they actually made any movies. You can pivot throughout your life, and I think, especially looking at my own life, like the way that the economy is now, it's like pivoting is a good skill to have. And so I wouldn't say it's necessarily a, a like if you, I wouldn't say that if you don't go to film school, then you can never be a filmmaker because that's not the case. Like. Everyone is a filmmaker nowadays if you have a camera. Like, there are more than one ways, to, there's more than one way to make a film and more than one way to make a good film. And, like, you don't need to make necessarily like a narrative feature length movie in order to kind of like pick up film grammar. Like, I just know, like, when Vine was still a thing, my friends and I would just love Vine because you could just like see the expert filmmaking in six seconds. So, like, the editing, the pacing, the blocking, like, there's so much you can do in such a condensed amount of time. And, like, there's so many ways to storytell in a visual way that if you don't go to film school, I wouldn't say that it's the end of the world. It's more important to have interesting, like to be interested, um, not necessarily in filmmaking, but just to be interested, like find the thing you're interested in. And like, you might find that like, if you get really into some political cause, or if you get really into some bit of history that you want to research, then you might find yourself using your passion for film to do something with that, whether it's to make documentaries or whether it's to do some kind of like interest. Like, I think the big thing now in documentary is to blur the line between fiction and um, nonfiction. 
Um, and this is like not new, obviously, in the world, but there is a lot more of a kind of attention on this kind of filmmaking nowadays. So I think there's a lot of room to be creative, and there are a lot of things that film school can provide, like the actual technical knowledge of using cameras properly. And like, I, I think that's a very valuable thing. And if you know for sure that you want to do that kind of work, then it can be very valuable to take film classes. Um, things, though, in terms of just kind of like having a network, I think if you really want to break into Hollywood or if you really want to break into like the New York film industry, then it is really useful to have a network from within those cities. But otherwise, it's more useful to have a network of people who are interested in the same things you are because that's where you can do interesting things. And it might be with film, and you might discover later that it's something else. So a fun thing we like to do when we call in uh, alumni of the film festival and Walpole, we like to ask uh, to name three movies that inspired them or that they really liked when they were in, in high school. And this, these are specific, three movies specific to the Walpole High School Film Festival that you were not involved in. Here's okay, key part, so, not involved. I mean, the first one I thought of was Crayon's Crusade. And I, I feel like that's, I don't know, is that the one that everyone says? But it was just... Cranberry's Crusade. Cranberry's Crusade. It was just such a good uh, screenplay. And it translated into a film very well. Like, I know... It's, it can be very difficult to pull off a mockumentary because it's like, it's such an easy concept to go for, like, let's do a mockumentary, but, like, to actually have your jokes land and to actually edit it the right way so that they land, like, that takes a little bit more skill. And I think these guys who did it, um, Nick Pick and who else was it? Dave Newman. Like, they did such a great job with it. And I remember, like, that was one where I'm just like, this is the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Pick was our first... Uh... Our first guest on this podcast. Yeah. So that's good. Good company. Yeah. yeah. And you have two others? Or you need uh, two others. Um, I remember, I just remember like the year of Pong and Dance Man. That may have even been the same year, but like the year before. Okay. So Pong and Dance Man just like had this manic energy that like I haven't been on the Academy very frequently in the last couple of years, but like it just had this manic, like this is a weird idea. We're just going to go for it. Like I haven't seen another movie capture that again. And like maybe there has been one that has, but like the guys who made it that year were just like, so like there was I don't know there was it was like a real ambitious project that was part of the ambition was just like the absurdity of it and it really worked and they got really good um, performances out of Mr. Gene and Mr. Kim for that too. Yeah, yeah that's Mike Flaherty. Yeah, uh, and one more. Or not? One more. Um, this is actually like a post my graduating movie, which was. The Cone. I just thought this was so clever and was just so proud of whoever made this movie and came up with this idea because it was just like I think horror is one thing that like the film festival has like danced around with. Like I remember there was Curtain Call back when I was in high school, um, but it's like it's a genre that we keep returning to because like it's you know it, it's so rewarding if you do it well, um, but if you don't do it well, then it's just it's like stale soda. It's like, why do I even bother with this? But like, I think the cone really kind of like, <laughs> for me at least, I just remember watching this. I don't know how it played in theaters because I was on the Academy and watching it at home. But just like, for me, it just like played like gangbusters. And I'm like, this is it. Like, thank you, whoever made the cone. <laughs> Jake Witherell. Yeah. Out in LA trying to make it happen out there. Yeah, Jake. Jake's out in LA. He'll be thrilled to hear that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people really like that movie yeah. though. It uh, definitely has its own style. All right, so now, what are three Hollywood movies that uh, you recommend uh, for these the up in, uh, the, these aspiring um, filmmakers? 
Okay, so I had to think about this. So Cat People, the 1942 Jacques Turner one. There's another one. Don't watch that one. So the 42 Cat People is a very short horror film. It's, for most of its runtime, more just kind of a suspense film because the actual horror kind of comes in at the end. But it's a movie that just like, I, if you watch this movie, pay attention to how it's lit and how it's blocked. I, I would just say like in general, just like pay more attention to blocking. Like now I'm like, wow, blocking is so important. And like storyboarding serves a purpose. Like when I was in the film program, I was just like, uh, storyboarding, do we have to do this? But like, if you block a scene out well, then it can pay enormous dividends. And like in Cat People, there's this one scene where this woman is leaving the Central Park Zoo at night and she's walking along the sidewalk with these lampposts, maybe like three to five meters apart from each other. And as she walks from one lamppost to the next, the background goes completely black and there's a spotlight on her. So she's the only thing on screen that's lit. And her footsteps are record, are like the, of the sound that's being picked up in this recording, like her footsteps are very clear. And you can also then hear someone else's footsteps behind her. So this scene lasts maybe like a minute long where just kind of like she's walking in, it almost seems it's so surreal because like, she walks underneath a lamppost and you can see like the bricks on the wall behind her. But then as soon as she walks like three steps away from it, it's like she's just like walking through a void, kind of like an under the skin. And it's just so effective at creating this atmosphere of dread and terror. And it's like, it's like she's kind of like on the verge, like she's on the verge of something. Like she's not quite in this world, but she is. Um, there's like another really good use of props in this because the main character is an architect. And so there's a big kind of like showdown scene in his office where they use these like light tables that like cast these giant rectangles of white light across the screen. And like, this is like peak film noir. It's really good um, and very short too. So it's like the perfect length of a movie, like 80 minutes or so. That's one. Two is Johnny Guitar, which is a Nicholas Ray Western with Joan Crawford. It is, it is the best. Like I, the best is like such a silly insipid way to describe a movie, but like, when you think of like Quentin Tarantino's influences, like I'm not, I'm kind of neutral on Westerns in general. Like I've loved some John Ford stuff, but I haven't really dug into the genre that much. Johnny Guitar though, is just like the most operatic Technicolor spectacle you could imagine for a Western. And it's so good at creating tension, at having character arcs. There's this scene where the town comes to, so Joan Crawford's character runs a saloon called Vienna, or Vienna's. And like, there's the scene where like, the other thing about this movie is like, it's so interesting how Nicholas Ray plays with the typical roles of women in Westerns, where like in this movie, Johnny Guitar is a character, but he's really off to the side. It's really Joan Crawford's movie. And the villain in this movie is this other woman who lives in the town. So the real battle here is between these two women. It's not between like man and savage, man and nature, whatever. So there's a scene where like the villainous woman like comes with this big mob and they're all wearing black and they barge into the doors of Vienna's and Joan Crawford is at the grand piano in this enormous white gown, just like playing this aria as she's prepared to go to her death, basically. Um, she escapes, but then they burn the thing down. Like, I think the chandelier, like, yes, they cut the chandelier and the chandelier crashes and like everything's on fire. It's a great, great movie. She's good in that movie. I'm a big Crawford fan. Now, one more. One more. So I don't know if this counts as Hollywood per se, um, but I know because we are really interested in documentaries here, I'm going to pitch Frederick Wiseman's Welfare, 
which so I'm a big Wiseman guy, and if you go and look up my um, film criticism, which Mr. Allen will obviously share the link to my website in the show notes, um, timmarcados.com if you are interested. Um, so I've really taken a liking to Fred Wiseman's documentary style. So instead of doing interviews with subjects, he picks a subject, and it'll be like some abstract institution, like hospital, high school, welfare office. And he'll go and like talk to people behind the scenes to be like, hey, I'm filming a movie about this place, this subject. Can I just get release forms to like buzz around with my camera? So what he does is he'll pick something he wants to make a movie about. He'll spend several weeks there and film hundreds of hours of footage. Then he kind of like goes and locks himself in his little workroom in Cambridge. And he edits hundreds of hours of footage down to usually a three to four hour long movie. Um, welfare is just under three hours long. It's from 1975. It all is set in this welfare office in New York City. And it is just a movie that just demonstrates the importance of pacing and sequencing. Uh, so there are a lot of sequences in this movie that are like maybe even as long as 15 minutes long. Like it'll be cut, so it won't be a continuous one take, but it's all just kind of like you're just kind of like trapped with characters. And like for this particular movie, it's very important that he's trying to show how inefficient the bureaucracy is and how people who need help and people who maybe like are kind of being screwed over by the system just kind of like get stuck in this purgatorial system of like trying to figure out why their mail with their welfare check didn't arrive. And like the way he shapes this movie is so key to its success. It's not just that the people who he finds to film are captivating or that the subject itself is captivating, but it's that he knows how to make this arc so that you're completely riveted for the three hours of this whole movie's runtime. That's good that you recommended the doc. Now, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you to, to recommend three foreign films. <gasps> and I know you want to, right? <laughs> I do. So, oh gosh, I didn't come, I didn't come prepared for this though, but this is very extemporaneous. So I'm very big on Romanian cinema at the moment. Um, there's a filmmaker named Radu Jude, who's one of the younger of this crew. Um, he made a movie a few years ago called Afarim, which is a black and white Western that's a black comedy, and it is just stupendous. It's hilarious. It's horrifying. Um, he's very interested in investigating his country's um, sort of like historical amnesia around the way that Jewish people were treated in the 18th, 19th centuries, 20th centuries even. Um, and so like his filmmaking progression has included a lot of that kind of blending of fiction and documentary. Other foreign films. So I've already, I've already played up The Green Ray, um, which I know you can watch on Criterion Channel because I just checked the other day. So you should watch The Green Ray. Okay, wild card pick. So I'm pro Lucrecia Martel. I know some people think her movies aren't good. However, I think she's a very exciting filmmaker. Um, she doesn't do anything kind of ordinary. And her most recent movie, Zama, is one that I'm going to have to come back to because, oh shoot, I wanted to change my answer mid-sentence, but I'm not going to. So Zama's a very interesting movie. It is based on a Argentine novel called Zama, which is sort of like, sort of like as Albert Camus' The Stranger is to France, my impression is that Zama is to Argentina. So it's set in three time periods where this colonial officer is like separated from his wife because he's on duty on the Argentinian shore, and he really just wants to get home to his wife. But he keeps getting transferred to new locations in the Spanish colony. And like each successive place he gets transferred to is slightly worse than the previous one. And so the movie 
takes this three-act structure and just kind of like doesn't explain what it's doing with it. What it does instead is it just creates this oral soundscape where there's just like all this noise, there's all this weird stuff happening in your ears throughout this movie. There's a scene where a llama just wanders into the shot and you're like, yes, that is the best performance by an animal in a film this year. And it's like, Lucrecia Martel is a very good photographer too. So there are a lot of shots in this movie that are just thrilling in their own right. And toward the end of the movie, she does something I've never seen before. Where like, she's, it's like kind of like a screwed and chopped kind of editing. Where like, you know that like frames are being dropped in the sequence that you're watching, but you can't tell how they're being dropped in such a way that it's creating the effect you're seeing. So it's very otherworldly. And this is like a part of the movie where like he ends up in this sort of like very out of his element, kind of like captured by natives and. It's like the movie kind of like breaks down. There's like nar narrative logic. What's that? Like to watch this movie, you just kind of have to submit to it. But it's one of those things where like even if it's impossible for anyone to recreate something like this, because Lucrecia Martel's a genius and like you're not going to be able to do this unless you have whatever bug she was bitten by to like be able to do this. Like it's still the kind of thing that can give you an idea for like, ooh, I didn't know that film could do that thing. I want to try doing that thing. And like, you might be able to like, kind of like how if you listen to a piece of music or if you read a really good poem, you might like hear or see something that you're just like, oh, the way that they used a tambourine in that song or the way that they used that turn of phrase in that poem. Like, I want to try doing something that's inspired by that. Like, it's the kind of movie that's maybe like very out there in terms of just like, what did I just spend two hours watching? But it could be like a source of, weird expressionistic inspiration. All right, I think that's, that's it, Tim. I was gonna say, is there anything else you want to, um, like anything you want to plug? You already gave your website, anything that like our listeners and our students can kind of check out. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to check out my newsletter, all of my back issues are available online. You can go to tinyletter.com slash Tim Marcados. My name will be in the title of the podcast. Um, and you can either subscribe if you really want to hear my thoughts on movies in your inbox twice or once a month at this point. Um, and you can also read the last 67 issues that I've made in the last couple of years. And they're very good. They're very well written. Well, thanks, Tim, for coming in. Thank you again. Thanks for stopping by the studios. We're glad to have you, even though you're here for, what, one day, two days, maybe, yep. and then back, <laughs> back to D.C. So glad you uh, made the time to stop by. Mm -hmm. All right. Glad to be here. You've been listening to Walpole High Film Festival's podcast, One Point Perspective. <laughs>